Parashat Korach, we're going to um, look at an aspect of Korach that we're all familiar with, but we somehow skip because we get drawn into the broader aspects of the story. So uh, first I'm going to describe the story of Korach um, in very broad terms, summarize it. The story of Korach is as follows, that there was dissent in, within the Levite tribe because Moshe and his brother Aaron had taken all the plum jobs. And Korach, who was the other significant member of the Levite family, felt that he'd been overlooked, and he also wanted to get a nice job. You know, I was there through the hard times and through the good times. I want to get the good job. And he fermented rebellion, not just within the tribe, but beyond the tribe within the nation, gathered together 250 significant figures, um, and their motivations were probably completely different to his, and other malcontents and discontents and troublemakers, and they uh, engaged in a rebellion against the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moses. The point is that, and the end of the story is, you know, is evident even from the beginning, although perhaps Moshe Rabbeinu was concerned, he knew that uh, God had chosen him to be the leader and that wasn't going to change. The question was how it was going to unfold. And in the end, the rebels are um, divided. Um, Korach and his group um, are swallowed up by the earth. The people, the 250 princes or leaders, are um, told to bring incense to the sanctuary uh, and they are consumed by fire and the rebellion is quelled. So there's no more rebellion and Moses' leadership has been confirmed. There is some type of process to establish Aaron's uh, um, status as the high priest. That comes a little bit later with the staffs, um, the, you know, the, each tribe put together a staff and out of the Aaron's staff grew almonds and that's later, later on. But the point is that um, the central aspect or the central theme of the parish of Korach is always the rebellion. So there is a rebellion, there is a revolution against the leadership, and that revolution um, is, is kind of knocked away, and the revolutionaries are dealt with, and life went on. But I want to focus on an aspect of the revolution, of the rebellion, which is the controversy, the argument, the um, dispute between Moshe Moses and Korach, and between the factions within the nation. We're going to see that the Talmud has a remarkable, um, a remarkable way of interpreting a particular phrase in this week's portion, in this week's Parsha, which absolutely does not lend itself to this translation, but it is used as the platform to promote unity and um, brotherhood within the Jewish nation. So we're going to read the actual original text of the Pasuk, two Pasukim I've chosen. Um, this is an instruction that was given by Moshe, by Moses to Elazar, who's the son of Aaron. Um, in the wake, that means after everybody's been dealt with, all the rebels are now dead, there's no more rebellion, Life is back to normal, everything is placid, everything is calm, there's no problem anymore. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu says, that 
um, Elazar should take the copper pans that were going to be used by the uh, rebels to bring their incense, should take those, melt them down, and use them as a kind of cover to plate the um, external altar that was in the yard outside the sanctuary that was used to bring the sacrifices. As a reminder of the fact that this rebellion took place and was unsuccessful. So every time somebody brought a sacrifice, they would see this altar, beautiful copper, copper-covered altar. Ah, where's the copper from? It's from the rebels. The rebellion failed. Okay, so the revolution was over, and here's your proof. It's a kind of a, 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 a reminder of the victory. Look what it says in the Pasuk. This is Bamidbar, chapter 17, Yudzain, Pasuk Dalad, and Hay. It's the symbolic end of the Korach controversy. Vayikach el Azar ha-Kohen et machtot ha-Nechoshet. El Azar, the priest, took the copper fire pans, asheri krivu ha-Serufim, which had been used for the offering by those who had died. Serufim means the ones who had been burnt. Vayirakum tzipui la-Mizbeach. And they were hammered into a plating for the altar. Why? This is the second pasuk. Zikaron livnei Yisrael, as a reminder to the Israelites. Lemana shelo yikrav ish zar, ashelo mizera Aaron, who lahaktir Aaron, who lahaktir ktoret livnei Hashem. So, as a reminder to the Israelites that no outsider, one not of Aaron's offspring, should presume to offer incense before God. And this is the key phrase here. I've highlighted it. Um, and they should not suffer the fate of Korach and his group and his band. As God had ordered him through Moses. So, so Elazar did as God had commanded. He'd heard the command from Moses. Essentially what he did was, is he created this plating, this copper plating for the altar, which should act as a reminder that if you're not from the offspring, from the descendants of Aaron, from the family of Aaron the priest, don't get involved in um, sacerdotal duties. You should make sure to avoid that. You've got your role in the um, nation of Israel. Do not get involved in a role or try and get involved in a role that's not for you. So let me read that phrase again. That it should not happen to you. You should not be like Korach and his band and his group and his gang who were obliterated as a result of their rebellion. What was the purpose of their rebellion to replace Aaron, the high priest, and his family? That was a failure. These, this copper plating that you see should act as a reminder that you shouldn't do the same thing because the same fate that... Uh, took place or that happened to Korach could happen to you as well. That seems to be the context. If you want, looking for the plain translation of the Pasuk, that is what the Pasuk is saying. Yes. But he gave them physical reminder because of the similar thing happened when Aaron's son rebelled, right? So an explanation for God, even though it's... But, but here, I, I, I don't want to get distracted because you're going to hear that... What I'm going to talk about today has absolutely nothing to do with what I just said. Okay? That's the key that you need to realize here is that the basic understanding of the Pasuk 
has got nothing whatsoever to do with what I'm going to talk about. And I'll tell you why. Because I don't know about you, I've never seen the altar. Okay, and I'm never going to see it. That altar is not, you know, it no longer exists. Yes, there's a record of it here in the Torah. That altar no longer exists. Even if we build the Beit HaMikdash, we're going to have to build a new altar, which is going to use new copper, not the copper from these pans, number one. Number two, I have no intention, whether, I, whether or not I see this copper, of ever replacing Aaron or his descendants as a high priest or a priest. So I have no desire to do the duties of the temple. So it's, again, not a relevant thing to me. Thirdly, even if it was relevant to me, this would be of no use because I'm never going to see it. Right? So the reminder aspect of this copper has no role to play in my life or in anybody's life. So the, the pasuk here seems to be a very time-bound instruction or piece of information that relates to the era in which it happened, but has no relationship with you and me. It has nothing to do with our lives. As you know, Chazal, the Talmud, the Midrash, are never happy with simply treating um, aspect, any aspect of a Torah narrative as something that's only relevant to the time. There has to be some relevance to us. And what they do is something quite remarkable, is they change the context of this phrase of so that it becomes relevant to us. Listen, this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, 110a, Kufyud Omadalaf. Vayikach Moshe Vayelech El Datan Va'abiram. So earlier on in the story, okay, in the previous chapter, one of the things that had happened, and you know, I know I've done this in previous years, I've gone through the actual, um, you know, the details of the story, the narrative as it unfolded, because the revolution didn't happen in 15 minutes. In other words, it wasn't over in 15 minutes. There were different aspects to it, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu tried different tactics at different moments during the period of time that the re rebellion was happening. One of the things that he did is Vayakam, vayakam Moshe, Vayelech el datan va'aviram. Moshe Rabbeinu got up from where he was and he went to two of the most difficult rebels. These, uh, these were the biggest troublemakers of all. This was their final moment of glory before they went down literally into the earth and were never seen again. Datan and Aviram had been a thorn in the side of Moshe Rabbeinu since the time when they'd been fighting with each other and Moshe Rabbeinu intervened. And they said, who you, you murdered an Egyptian yesterday, don't tell us not to fight. And he had to run away, which is why he ended up in Midian, um, in the house of Jethro. So Datan and Aviram have a very long history of animosity towards Moshe Rabbeinu. They joined, these, these were two malcontents, who joined with Korach in his rebellion against Moshe. You know, they were, they were as you might put it, the usual suspect. They, were, they fit the bill perfectly. They were always against the leadership of Moshe Rabbeinu, and in this situation, they joined with Korach. Not that their um, motivations were similar to Korach, but they were simply people who were in opposition to Moshe Rabbeinu. What happens when people are of that ilk? Generally speaking, you want to have nothing to do with them. If, if you're in public life and you know that you have a terrible enemy, 
The bottom line is you want to have nothing to do with that person. You try and avoid that person like the plague. The interesting thing here is that Moshe, in the moment of the rebellion, instead of just saying, like, right, those two people forget about. We're never going to be able to handle them. I have history of many, many years of animosity from them. Forget it. We can't deal with it. I'll try and deal with Korach. I'll try and deal with the 250. Datana and Aviram are just not worth handling. That's not what happened. He got up and he went to them. The great leader, the king, the man who led the Jewish nation out of Egypt, goes to two malcontents, people, you know, the, you know, always at the back of the room, whispering to their friends and muttering negative things about the leadership. He went to them, says the Gemara. Omar Reish Lokish. Reish Lokish says, Mikan she'ein machzikin b'machloket. From here we derive that one may not perpetuate a dispute. Why? Because instead of him allowing the dispute to fester, the argument to fester, and he knew that Datan and Aviram were unlikely to ever see it from his point of view, he nevertheless went to them, he knocked on their door, and he adds some, the Gemara adds something here. The Omar Rav, kol hamachzik b'machloket, over belav. Anybody who perpetuates a dispute violates a prohibition. As it is stated, now you're going to imagine that the Gemara, the Talmud, is going to quote a pasuk, a verse, which directly to re relates to not perpetuating a dispute. Now, quotes the pasuk that I just read. What's the pasuk? Suddenly, this pasuk takes on a totally different meaning. You should not be like Korach and his gang. Not, you shouldn't be like them because if you um, try and become like one of the descendants of Aaron and take part in temple duties, you will have the same fate as Korach and his gang, but simply taken um, by itself. Forget what it says elsewhere in the Pasuk. This phrase by itself, can be translated as meaning, you shouldn't be like Korach and his gang. Don't be like them. Forget what it says in the rest of the Pasuk. Don't be like them. Rav uses this Pasuk as the platform for avoiding controversy, disputes, arguments, any type of negative behavior within a community that can bring about division has to be avoided at all costs because if it's not avoided, you are like Korach and you are like his gang. So you see the Talmud takes this phrase and, and repackages it as a um, as the platform for a prohibition against machloket. That's what, that's what Rav is doing. So Moshe Rabbeinu did everything in his power to avert controversy. And the Pasuk actually says, says Rav, that you're, you must avoid controversy because if you don't, you're just like Korach and just like his gang and you'd never want to be like them. Yes? Attempt to make it... Uh... 20th, 20th, 21st century relevant. 
When you started to talk, you used the word rebellion, and then you transferred to the revolution. I would go for a revolution because of Korach came with the new ideology, because of he was putting out the sentence and the new motto, we are nation of God. And the God says, you will be nation of God. So he came out with the new quote, ideology. So when Moses come and back says, don't be like that, he says, well, every man on his own, because of we have personal responsibility, and if we want to be productive unit, everybody... Okay, but we're, we're already taking this to the next stage. You're now adopting, you're adopting the interpretation of the Talmud, which is not the literal understanding of the Pasuk. Doesn't really, and that's wonderful, but, but you see that what you're doing is, you suddenly, you've just, you've put on this suit of clothes called the Talmud, where you've allowed yourself to, to reinterpret the Pasuk in the Torah using the Talmud as the basis. But that's not what the Pasuk says. And suddenly, it actually doesn't matter how we interpret this to mean. So it could mean what you're saying, that Moshe Rabbeinu's method of aspirational uh, religiosity and spiritual you know, growth is much better than Korach's. That's wonderful, but that's not what the Pasuk says. So the Talmud is telling you that what the Pasuk is actually telling you is, don't be like Korach. Now, we now need to define Korach to know how not to be. But that's not what the Pasuk said. The Pasuk had been telling us, don't end up like Korach, right? So, to bring this also into another context, the famous saying that causeless hatred was the cause of... Causeless hatred made the fall of Jerusalem. Yes. Sinat Chinam. I spoke about it last night. Yeah. Sinat Chinam. Um, and you actually, you know what? Hold that thought because it's going to come up and in the shear. Another, which is James Madison in Federalist Papers 10, where he talks about factionalism and how to deal with it. And as you were speaking, I thought of Nancy Pelosi trying to deal with the factions in her party. It, now. At, currently, at the moment. And this is exactly the issue. The are we looking for common ground or are we looking for differences? Yes, and it's all. And I wrote about it last week. My article last week was exactly that. Oh, when you get you get focused when when. You get focused on differences, you actually lose sight of the common cause. So, the, the most, and what I always claim in my inner being is that the people who really understood human psychology in the field of public action were the rabbis of the Talmud and the people who wrote the Federalist Papers. They are the same. They're congruent. No, it's absolutely right. They were congruent. They were looking for things or for ideologies or ideas that focused on common ground, that didn't focus on differences. You know what? It is incredible. It is incredible. And this is a total digression. It is incredible that it doesn't matter what system you have, you always have people who think 
in a left-wing sort of way, and you always have people who think in a right-wing sort of yeah. way. How do you bring all those people together? Because it's, it's, it's of course it's hardwired. It's it's a person's personality. So how do you bring all those people together? So what the Talmud is telling you, and and really this is what the Shir is about. So let me get on with it. But what the Talmud is telling you is the What was the sin of Korach and Adato? What was the sin of Korach and his gang? They were looking for reasons to fight. Not looking for reasons to reconcile or to come together. We are this and you are that and what we are is better than what you are. That's really what the... Okay, so we have obviously within you know, in the public sphere, there's nothing wrong with having an opinion. The question is, what is the result of that opinion? And, and how, how do you take that opinion and create some type of common ground that, so that we can all come together? I, I'm going to, let me, let me continue, because it's not a long share, but it's a type of share, it's the type of subject matter which can really generate a lot of discussion. So let me just read the Chovetz Chaim. The Chovetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Kagan, in his book Shmirat HaLashon, which of course is about slander, libel, people who speak ill of each other, he speaks about the scourge of controversy. Okay, excuse the English pronunciation of that word. I'm going to read the English um, translation that I've put together here. One must also take care not to assist controversy. You see that word? Miliot hamachloket. You're not allowed to assist controversy so that one not be punished among those who promote controversy when their time comes. As Chazal say, this is a Gomorrah Makkus Davheomid base. The Torah punishes the abettors the helpers of transgressors, just like the transgressors themselves. And here he quotes the Medrash in Parshas Korach, where it says, Come and see how severe Machloket is. Even those who abet Machloket, God destroys their remembrance, as it is written, and a fire went forth from God and consumed 250 men who were presenting incense. And now he quotes our Gemara. Sanhedrin 110a, Rav said, all who persist in machloket transgress a negative commandment, a prohibition. As it says, he shall not be like Korach and his congregation. So here we're not talking about people who are themselves argumentative. Not just argumentative. People who stand on the side and allow arguments to persist are aiders and abettors of controversy. That's what they are. And controversy is an evil. It's, a, it's an infection. It's a cancer. Because it leads to tremendous discord and that can undermine the fabric of a common goal. We all have a common goal. We all want to live, you know, uh, um, Jefferson would have said, a, a life of, uh, what were the three things life, he said? Liberty, the life, of of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What? Well, and whatever our version of that is, that was Je Jefferson's version, but whatever our version is, we all have that same goal. How are we going to realise that goal if we don't see eye to eye? So we must avoid any type of controversial um, situation or arguments which are going to limit our opportunity 
for the pursuit of life, liberty, and, or, uh, um, and the pursuit of happiness. And also the kind of controversy that would limit your opportunity for compromise later. Yes, correct. You, you, need, you need to be able to find common ground. So you see that embedded in uh, Talmudic Judaism is this idea. And don't forget, the Talmud is full of disagreements. But they're also full, it's also full of methodologies that allow for a particular line to be respected. So we have, I spoke about it, and I can't remember if this past Shabbat or the Shabbat before, about the 300 and something disputes between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Remember, we discussed that. And despite the fact that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel disagreed on all those occasions, First of all, Beit Hillel was always willing to compromise with Beit Shammai when Beit Shammai had a more lenient opinion than them. And ultimately, the law was decided according to Beit Hillel. And the Gemara, the Talmud records that the Beit Shammai people would marry into the families of the Beit Hillel people. And the Beit Hillel people would marry into the families of the Beit Shammai people. And it was good. It worked. Why? Because they had a common goal, the perpetuation of Judaism and the spiritual mission, the God mission of the Jewish nation. Ultimately, keep your focus on the goal. It shouldn't be about one particular version of achieving that goal, because ultimately, if we're all heading in the same direction, as long as we're getting there, it doesn't really matter how we get there. So the Talmud is very, even though it records all the disputes, it records them only to tell you that ultimately a decision was made in one particular way or another. Yeah. It's because of the, I guess, Midrash says about those disputes that ultimately the voice of living God said it's, it's all good. Right? It's all good. Okay. A, that's what it said about Beit Shammai. I quoted that's it. Right. These and those are the words of the living God. But because of they meant well, and that's the difference between what we are dealing with today, because of Korach is a demagogue. Which who brings in the ideology? So now, what I want, I'd like to, I'd like to help us understand in the time that we have left, what differentiated Korach from Beit Shammai. Okay, and by the way, the Mishnah in Avot says the Machloket l'shem Shamayim is Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, and the Machloket which isn't l'shem Shamayim, not for the sake of heaven, is Korach va'adato. Right. So how, how are we to understand what it was that Korach was that was bad? Because ultimately, you remember, you do remember that everything that we have recorded in the Torah, in the Hebrew Scriptures, is only there to tell us how we should conduct ourselves. So why should we record the rebellion of Korach? What is important in terms of... We don't need to know that Moshe was victorious because we know that Moshe was victorious, even if we never heard about Korach. We don't need to know about Korach's rebellion to know that Moshe was victorious, right? That's self-evident. So why should it be that we need to know about Korach? Because we need to know something about what Korach did that can help us understand what it is about his method that, is, um, that doesn't allow for Moshe's mission or for the Jewish mission to continue. So there's something about Korach which is important to understand. So even though it's not overt in the words of the Torah, 
somehow through the text of the Torah and the Talmudic interpretation, we're going to understand about the um, controversial approach or the, uh, you know, the very negative approach of Korach that, uh, uh, that we should avoid in order for us to be descendants, spiritual descendants or Talmidim uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay, so let's look at, we begin with the Nitivot Shalom. The rest of the Shir really is the Nitivot Shalom. I mean, he quotes others, but let's, let's look at him. I, it's in Hebrew, um, but I will translate as I go along. We need to understand. What is it about this particular portion of Korach that um, lends itself to this prohibition of avoiding machloket, of avoiding arguments, of avoiding um, disputes that are destructive. Let's, I'm going to talk, uh, talk about destructive controversy, okay? That's because controversy on its own is not a bad thing. We're allowed to disagree with each other, right? I'm allowed to have an argument with you. That's not the point. The point is we're not allowed to have destructive arguments. So that's, Korach's argument is a destructive argument. So what is it about this particular parsha that lends itself to becoming the basis for avoiding dest destructive arguments? Let me finish this piece, number four, which is at the bottom of page one. Ken yesh leva'er be'etzem parshat Korach, mahu godel ha'pgam shomachloket. In fact, um, asks the Netivot Shalom, what is so bad about arguments? What is such a, why is it such a terrible thing? So, you know, you, we've all heard this before. There's certain people who don't have a filter. Whenever they have an opinion, they just come out with it, they blurt it out, right? And they say, what's so bad about that? You could say, that's great, that's honest. At least I know what you're thinking. It's a wonderful thing. Why shouldn't I know what you're thinking? You know, in the pursuit of truth, maybe it's a good idea that somebody who says, you know, let's say somebody thinks... Uh, you know, the way I look is terrible. They come up to me, they say, you look terrible today. What's so bad about that? It's good. Maybe, maybe it's good for me to know that I look terrible. If somebody comes up to me and says to me, I think that you are completely wrong. Everything that came out of your mouth is a mistake. Maybe that's a wonderful thing. Why should we avoid that kind of confrontation? So what is so bad about what Korach did? Actually, there's a certain element of honesty there, right? No, it's the intent. Uh, so we need to understand that. We need to define it. Korach came along and said, Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm not happy. I'm not happy with you. You've taken the leadership for yourself. Why should you have it? Why shouldn't I have it? And you could say to yourself, actually, that it's good. thank you for telling me. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for expressing yourself. Let's see if we can work it out. What's so bad about what Korach did? And I understand that there's more to the story, but in essence, what's wrong with confrontation? What's wrong with arguments? What's wrong with disputes? Um, and you know what? The Talmud says there's such a terrible punishment for it. What was the punishment for Korach? What happened to Korach? A very unusual punishment. 
you know, that's banned. You know, you're not allowed to have cruel and unusual punishment. This is a cruel and unusual punishment. Except His entire family was swallowed up in the earth. There was some type of cataclysmic event. The earth opened up and his entire family was swallowed up by the earth. A sinkhole. A sinkhole, right. So Why? It, everything, right? Yeah. Suddenly, his, there it was, his house, his, you know, whatever it was he was living in, his entire fortune was there, his family smiling there. It's a beautiful picture, a photo moment. It's an Instagram moment. And if you take the photo a second later, there's nothing there. Why did he get such a cruel and unusual punishment? What did he do wrong, essentially? He didn't eat bacon. He didn't desecrate any of the laws of Shabbat. He ate matzah on Pesach and he shook lulav on Sukkot. So why is he being punished in this way? So he had an opinion about Moshe Rabbeinu. Big deal. Why would he? And not only that, the Torah tells us the word that's used here is... Do you know what happened? God created a special, unprecedented situation, a creation that allowed for this punishment to occur. It had never happened before. Suddenly Korach was punished in this way. God had to, as it were, come out of retirement and create this cruel and unusual punishment for Korach. Why? What did he do so bad? Slam the guy, put the guy in jail, okay? Or, you know, hang him. If you really want to go all the way, capital punishment, we've got four methods in Talmudic law of capital punishment. It doesn't include the electric chair. Apparently, they didn't have that in those days. But it certainly didn't include being swallowed up by the earth. So why would Korach be swallowed up by the earth? Because of it's so hold on, hold on, hold the thought. There had never happened this thing before in the world. Why would we need to create a new type of punishment just for this Korach event? There are many sins that are recorded in the Torah. And all of them have their own Punishment. For example, if you're a murderer, you get capital punishment, right? If you, if you don't observe the Shabbat and you were warned and you're part of that community where observance of the Shabbat is important, you get, you get stoned. I mean, I don't know if it happened very often, but it did happen. It's recorded. There's one record of it in the Torah. It's a capital crime. We know what a capital crime is. There are capital crimes that are recorded in the Torah. Machloket is not one of them. Arguments, disputes, controversies is not one of them. All the cardinal crimes, the cardinal sins of the Hebrew Scriptures, such as uh, uh, the worship of pagan idols, uh, um, immorality, sexual immorality, murder, all of these have recorded punishments. Machloket. Controversy doesn't have a recorded punishment. So when it came to Machloket, suddenly he had to create a new form of punishment. Why? And I'll tell you something else. Even if you agree with what Rav says in Sanhedrin, that, um, that Machloket is a love, 
What a love, a prohibition. What happens if you desecrate, if you, if you commit a, a sin, which is a prohibition? What's the worst punishment you can get? Lashes, makot. 40 lashes. 30, minus 1, 39, right? So if you're going to say that what Korach did was a love, he didn't get, it wasn't a capital crime. He gets lashes. You're a very naughty boy, right? Sounds like a line from Monty Python's Life of Brian. You're a very naughty boy. That's what he was, a very naughty boy. But it's, it doesn't mean his entire family should be swallowed up. The and punishment puts it to the extraordinary category and it's almost like the one who touched the tabernacle when he flipped and God punished him because of there's a universal moral law which if we cross even unintentionally how okay do you understand that in the torah we have the origins of all these ideas and they always need definition so you're right so but we three th okay above, but we need to understand why that category exists what is the defining characteristic of that category because of it, it uh, questions or it violates the universal moral law Okay, but we need to understand that. We need to get an appreciation of that. We need to know what that means. It's not for you and me to define. The Torah defines it. So let's get an understanding of it. Continues the Nitivot Shalom. Ken Tzarech Bi'ur, we need an understanding. Ma Shamru Chazal. The Chazal saying this is a Midrash. Kama Kasha Machloket Shebet Din Shalmala in Kosim Konsim Elami Ben Kraf Shana Mala Ubedin Shalmata Mi Ben Yud Gimel. What is the situation with Korach? You know what the law is? The, um, in a heaven, you don't get any kind of punishment for committing a sin um, until the age of 20. After the age of 20, you're punished. In sort of, uh, you know, in this world, as it were, in this, if you go to court, if you steal at the age of 12, you don't get punished. There's no punishment for juveniles in Jewish law. There may be edu education, re-education, we may want to relocate them to a different and better location so that they're better educated, but we certainly don't punish them. From the age of 13, you're liable for your sins. What happened with Korach and his family? I don't know how old Korach was. We must assume he was around the same age as Moshe Rabbeinu, right? He was his cousin, so whether he was 70, 80, whatever he was, he was an older man. But he had children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, however, however many he had, who were babies. And they were all killed. Why were they killed? What's the message of their, um, of their having also been involved in the punishment? Now, I don't know what actually happened, but I know what's recorded. The record is that his entire family was obliterated. They were all swallowed up by the earth. Why? There's a message in there for me. Why, when it comes to the, an ordinary sin, it says you're not allowed to steal, and if you steal, you get punished. In this world, from the age of 13 and beyond. In the next world, from the age of 20 and beyond, right? What is the message of Korach being punished, or his, his descendants, whoever they were, his family being punished, even if they were little children? Look what it says. So, shall Korach, Tinokot, Bnei Yoman, even day-old babies, Nisrufu v'nivlu b'shol tachdiyot. They were burnt and swallowed up in the in the earth. Dictiv Unashayem Uvneem Vatapam Vayardu Hem Vakola Shelahem Chayim Shola. 
his wife, his children, everybody who was part of his household was swallowed up into the earth as part of the punishment of Korach and his, um, uh, and his rebellion. The kasher, mashayach onesh letapam. Why would children be killed in that situation? We don't find any kind of comparative situation in the entire Hebrew scriptures. Nothing. But oh, there is one. Not with Jews. There's one. Amalek. Right? We know that Amalek has to be destroyed. The entire nation. But we don't find it in any Jewish punishment, a punishment for some infraction, that somebody who is who has not yet reached the right age would be punished. So what was different about Korach? What about this instruction that Moshe Rabbeinu gave? A very curious instruction. He says, ah, don't touch anything that belongs to them. Don't even touch it. Was it Tamei? It wasn't Tamei. Why couldn't they touch it? You're not allowed to touch even something, or some object that belongs to them. You're not, you're allowed to touch Avodah Zarah. You're not allowed to benefit from selling Avodah Zarah. If somebody committed Gilui Arayot, somebody is an adulterer, and he comes up to you and he says, he wants to shake your hand, say good Shabbos. Are you allowed to touch him? Of course you're allowed to touch him. Why wouldn't you be allowed to touch him? So he's an adulterer. Good Shabbos. What about somebody who's a murderer? Are you allowed to touch a murderer? Are you allowed to touch something that belongs to a murderer? In Jewish law, of course you're allowed to touch it. There's absolutely no prohibition. You're allowed to touch a murderer's book or a murderer's car. Why not? So why can't you touch Korach's car? So what, what is going on here? We need to understand. So there's a lot more going on beneath the surface that we really need to understand. We don't have any frame of reference for this prohibition, for this sin, that would help us understand what is so bad about it that you can't be in proximity to it, you can't even touch it. Because the Torah doesn't give you that level of prohibition relating to controversy, rebellion, that, that would engender this level of negativity. So what's going on? Sorry, I read that already. Um, and here's what Chazal say. Mikdash Rishon Mipnei Macharav. Why was the first Beit HaMikdash destroyed? We mentioned this already, already, right? You mentioned it. Why was the first Beit HaMikdash destroyed? So there's an answer. The Chazal give an answer. Because there were three sins which they couldn't control themselves in, which were the cardinal sins of Judaism. Pagan worship, adultery, immorality and sexual behavior, right? And the third one is murder. There were three things where they completely lost control. The Jewish nation had not erred in any of these prohibitions when it came to the second Beit HaMikdash. So why were they punished? What did they do wrong? Sinat Chinam. That's what the Gemara says. That's, that's exactly what it says. 
There was um, causeless hatred. Causeless hatred. There was internecine disputes and disagreements and hatred which, was, which had completely infested the Jewish nation. There was literally, you know the, the joke, two Jews, three opinions, yeah. right? It wasn't a joke. That was life during the late Second Temple period. What is that telling you? If I tell you that the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because of one thing, and the first one was destroyed for three things, what does that immediately tell you? That they are, they are congruent with each other. They are equal to each other. One second. I want to ask you a question. What's the law about the three cardinal sins? If I were to put a gun to someone's head and say, unless you commit adultery, I'm going to shoot you, or unless you murder that person, I'm going to shoot you, what is the law? Shoot me now. That's the Jewish law. If I were to put a gun to someone's head and say, you know what, eat a piece of bacon or I'm going to shoot you, what should you do? Eat the bacon. Eat it right now. Don't allow yourself to be shot. Break Shabbat or I'm going to shoot you. Break Shabbat, do it. But if somebody's told to murder another, unless you murder that person, I'm going to kill you, you're not allowed to do it. What does that tell you? That these sins, it's not worth living if you've committed them. And all three of those sins seem to be, in the quote from Chazal, considered equal to Sinat Chinam, to controversy, dispute, machloket. That's what the that's what Chazal are telling us. The Hagufa Tamibai. Hare Sinat Chinam Asura If if we tr- compare them halachically, there's no comparison. There is n- absolutely no prohibition which is equal in terms of Sinat Chinam to Gilui Arayot and Avodazara and Shvichut Damim. Nothing. It doesn't compare in halachic terms. So how can it be that it's used as a comparison, as an equal, when it comes to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash? Lot Tisnait Achicha Bilvavecha, it says, right? You're not allowed to hate your brother in your heart. How can you even compare these two? How is it possible the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed on the basis of disputes and arguments and the first one was destroyed for the three cardinal sins? It doesn't make any sense. So he quotes, and this is now source number five, he quotes the Shalah. The Shalah talks about, and this only makes problems um, greater. It, it makes the whole issue more problematic. What does the Shalah say? I'm not going to read the whole Shalah because I want to get to number six, seven, and eight. The Shalah says that the 250 supporters of Korach were not evil people. They weren't evil people. They were good people. They were tzaddikim. They were righteous. Why did they get involved in this dispute? So they considered Moshe Rabbeinu to be a great leader. But he was very close to God. And they imagined that God wanted to do his will. And he had davened, he would prayed to God to give him all the plum jobs. Because he wanted proximity to God, and that would guarantee his ability to communicate and be close to God at all times. And his brother and his family, whatever it is. So they said, you know what, God? 
We also want to have that proximity. We also want to have the ability to commune with you in the same way as Moshe Rabbeinu. We understand you love Moshe and he led your nation out of Egypt and he was there when the Torah was given at the revelation at Sinai. But we also want to have that same status. Not because we're negating his leadership, but give us the opportunity of having the things that he has. Says the Shladid that they were not bad people. They were misguided, but they weren't bad. So what caused them to do what they did? Why did the, and why were they punished? Korach, I understand. Korach was a bad person, let's say. Datana, Aviram, I think we can all agree. Terrible people. What about the 250? Maybe put them overnight in jail. Tell them, listen, you got it wrong. Give them a big musadrasha and let them off for good behavior. Parole them with an ankle bracelet. But you have to be more responsible. It's more than that. So and you're going to see that this is a very... Um, uh, insightful interpretation. Let's look at the Nitivot Shalom number six. Is so it's uh, um, I've I've titled this source. It's about the effect of machloket, not the cause. Listen to what he says. Achen, machloket is controversy, dispute, arguments, rebellion, anything. It's not about the sin. Is not the action, but the cause. So let's understand what the Torah is trying to teach us here. You have to understand that machloket in and of itself is not about the machloket, the, the actual sin, but what happens. It's, the effects of machloket are much greater than the machloket itself. What did Rabbi Akiva say? Akiva, by the way, is the star of the Talmud. The star of the Talmud. What did he say? What is the greatest? If you wanted to sum up the entire Torah in one phrase, you must love your neighbor as your friend. What is that about? How, do, what, how does he interpret that? What is he trying to say with that idea? Pirish. Klal gadolhu shekolel et kola Torah kula. The most important, the uppermost thought in your mind, that every stage of your religious growth has to be that you must, um, we use the word love, I'm not sure love, have affection for, concern for, be emotionally uh, connected to, those consider, consider uh, but it doesn't fit into the word but all of those things apply. That, that the needs of the person you're with should be equal to your own needs. Understand that every aspect of the Torah can be derived from this concept. It is the engine that enables Jewish unity. Is the engine that enables Jewish unity. How does that work? It is only when there is Jewish unity or when there is this aspiration for Jewish unity. 
because it's very hard for all people to be united at all times. But when there's an aspiration for Jewish unity, for togetherness, or at least a lack of um, apartness, that God can consider us or consider himself to be our father, and that is when we can be referred to as the children of God. We're part of one family. So yes, there are disputes in families. How do you know? I had this discussion yesterday with somebody I was teaching. It says in the Ten Commandments, You must respect your parents. Okay, you respect. What does that mean? It's an interesting question. What about if your parent is an interfering person and it causes discord between you and your husband <coughs> or between you and your wife? What are you meant to do? You're meant to maintain the level of distance between you and your parent that would enable you to respect them. Respect is the ultimate aspiration. So, machloket doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you have to be in the other person's business all the time and hugging each other, etc. I'm not talking about that. It means that you have to maintain a level of relationship with that person where you, where you are able to ment, um, sustain a cordial, meaningful unity within that group. Obviously, it's a community, right? So within a community, if every time, you know, somebody sees you, they make an insulting remark, or they say something you don't like, you have to maintain the level of distance that's required that you're not going to be exposed to that kind of abuse. However, you must remain united within the community. You must be able to be in the same room as that person in order to sustain a positive relationship. It doesn't mean you should hate them. It means that I can't be in close proximity to that person. Unity doesn't mean conformity or that we all get on with each other. Doesn't that, that's not what it means. What it means is we should work as much as we can to sustain and maintain positive relations with the people who we are with. Or that we are, that we are part of one group uh, together with. Let's continue. It goes back to the treat your fellow man as yourself. In that quote, fellow man and me are at the same level. Because yes. I have to have respect for myself to be able to draw the line when, as you said, when the parent is disrespectful, I have to say... But all, but all see, what's so interesting about that, and I'm, I'm not going to go into modern psychology, although he does talk of psychology in a minute, when people insist that they are given a certain level of respect or that they want, you know, it's all, it becomes so about them or, what, or, 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 or attention or they don't want to be in a relationship where they feel uncomfortable, it's generally to do with insecurity or, you know, to use a 1990s term, low self-esteem, right? It's, that's what it's about. I can't speak to that person because it, it doesn't make me feel great. It's low self-esteem. We're going to get to it because he has a most fantastic insight in a minute. Let, let, me, just, let me just continue this thought. When there is division among the Jewish nation, then God isn't called father and Israel isn't called children. 
כי גדול עד מאוד הוא כוחם של ישראל המאוחדים יחד. together with each other. Shezek Klal Gadol Batorah, that's what Rabbi Akiva says. Let's find common grounds that we can be together with each other. There's incredible power in this unity, even if we think differently. The Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel model, right? They completely disagree on so many things, and yet they found common ground that they could remain together, marry within each other's families. And Chazal continue and say something else, and this is a Medrash Tanchuma in Nitzavim. Nitzavim, my bar mitzvah parsha. What does it say, Nitzavim? Atem Nitzavim hayom kulchem. Here you are standing before me, all of you today. Mahayom? Why does it need to say today? What does it add? Afata bizman she'afela lachem eni me'ir lachem. Eimatai bizman she'atem kulchem baguta achat. When will the light of day shine into your darkness? When you're all together. When atem nitzavim kulchem. The hayom? will only happen if you're all together. The light will shine. You'll feel the light in your life when there is a togetherness. You know what? It's, it's so interesting. People who are involved in arguments, it bothers them a lot. Even if they're right, it disturbs them. When do you feel a sense of serenity and calm? When you're not involved in a dispute. When the person who you had an argument with, even if you still can't stand them, but you somehow have reached some type of modus vivendi. You can live in, in the same community as them. You can conduct your life in proximity to them. Ah, that's much better. I feel much better. There's, there's a light that comes on when you're able to function in that kind of environment. You should know that when people manage to live together as a community, then God will shine his kindnesses and the light will shine in our lives. They can put aside their differences in terms of it affecting their lives, not in terms of them agreeing with the other person, but it's not going to be to the extent that they can't live alongside the other person. And the exact true is in the opposite situation. It's exactly the same thing. Who? Commander Omar. Uh, the Zohar says, what is Machloket? Korach azil b'machloket, my Machloket. Korach grabbed on to dispute, on to controversy. What was he doing? What, what did he get out of it? What is Machloket in that situation? Plukta, differences, division. Plukta dele'ela v'tata. Do you know what happens as a result of that division? There's a division between not just the people down here, but between heaven above and the earth below. So the moment there is division between the people, there's a division between all the people, on both sides of the dispute, and God. There is, there is a correlation between the divisions that we experience and our own relationship with God. You know, when it comes to Rosh Hashanah, you know, people say, you know, why do I need to ask that fellow Mechila? Why do I need to ask him to forgive me? Or why do I need to reconcile with anyone? I know I'm going to come to Shul al-Davit. What type of relationship can you have with God if you don't have to understand how to have relationships with people? You need to relate to people. Because that's the only um, mode of relationship that we have. So you say, I've got a great relationship with God. Of course you've got a great relationship with God because you come to Shul, you say what you say, and you go home. 
But when you have to have a relationship with people, you know, who have speaking roles, they're not just uh, some, you know, some apparition, as it were, in your mind in shul. That's a real relationship. So when you have divisions between you and other people, it means you don't know how to have relationships, which means that the relationship with God can't be real. So the point is, let me just continue here. When there's division between the Jews, there's division between everyone and God. And that's what it means when it says that the second Beit HaMikdash was destroyed because there was causeless hatred. It's not the sin of causeless hatred. It's the result of causeless hatred. Of course, what, what, what are sins? What's the definition of a sin? The definition of a sin is you did something that disconnected you from God. But actually, there's something you can do which isn't a sin, which also disconnects you from God. So it's not about the legal application. It's not that sinat chinam is the same as immorality or a murder. But the result of sinat chinam is the same as the result of murder, which is a disconnect from God. So you can be the frumest person on the planet. You daven every day, three times a day. You do everything that you need, kosher, you keep Shabbat, and you, you know, when it comes to Pesach, you clean your house so that there's literally not a speck of chametz. And you come to, you build the most beautiful sukkah, and you shake lulav, and you do all the, you give a lot of charity, you do all the things you need to do. But you're an argumentative, difficult person. So ultimately, what is your relationship with God? What does it actually mean? It doesn't mean anything because you don't have a relationship with God if you don't have a relationship with the people around you. You don't need to be a murderer to achieve that objective. Go on. So, can Korah come to Moses and said, clarify something for me. What makes it right at this point? Or what is the basis at this point that you should be running things the way you do, and excluding people like me. If he had come and said that, that would have been controversy, but without hatred. Correct. No, he, he, if he was Beit Shammai to Moshe's Beit Hillel, that would have been totally fine. But he wasn't. So he didn't know how to do that. Listen, I want to read number seven, because this is, the, this is the, probably the most powerful aspect of the Shia. So if it's true to say, like the Shalas said, that these 250 people actually were good people. They meant it for the sake of heaven. You should know that Machloket is such an evil infection that even if you do it for the right reasons, it can destroy you. Why? Listen to what he says. That's why there is this prohibition against machloket, against controversy, arguments, disputes. You're not allowed to be like Korach. So if they were, if they meant it for the best possible reasons, how did they manage to fall into the trap of machloket? Listen to what he says. 
you should know that the primary reason for falling into the trap of any trap is ego. Ego is the, is the generator of everything bad in somebody's life, if it's uncontrolled. When the ego of a person takes complete control of every aspect of their lives, and takes complete control of everything that they do, what comes out of that is, is, will unquestionably be negative. It's not possible for it to be positive. He says a powerful thing. This is for all religious Jews. You know, this is a really powerful thing. You think that ego only affects the material aspects of your life. It's got nothing to do with the spiritual. Actually, your ego can totally undermine your spiritual well-being. It can convince you, you can be convinced that the reason that you are engaged in this, in fact, it's worse. The reason you're engaged in this campaign is because I believe in God. It's not true. It's your ego that's generating it. Absolutely. And that's what the... A congregation of Korach got wrong. What were they thinking? Of course, Aaron's a very good Kohen, but I'm better. I'm even better. I'll do a better job. I'm going to be more connected to God. I'm going to make sure that the, the, the sacred duties of the temple will be carried out through me even better. It's about me being the better one, not about it being better for God. It's not about thinking. I always say this to young couples when they come and see me. The secret of a good relationship is to make yourself number two in that relationship. If both parties make themselves number two in the relationship, it will thrive and it will get better and better. If one party makes themselves number two and the other one number one, well, then the relationship can survive, but it's not a healthy relationship. If both parties in a relationship insist on being number one in that relationship, it's doomed. It cannot be. If the moment you introduce ego into a relationship, and it applies to God as well, then that relationship is doomed. It cannot possibly survive. And that is how these people got into their heads. They, were, they, they had the best motivations. We want the best for God, they thought, because we'll be better than Aaron. Yeah, he's great, but we'll be better. And the moment they allowed themselves that liberty, it evolved into something which became a rebellion. It was a natural progression that they couldn't avoid. And that's why it's in this parsha, Specifically when it involves these 250 people who are good people, who made this mistake of allowing self, themselves the liberty of introducing yeshut, of ego, into their religious lives, into their relationship with God, that it was, was their downfall. They were doomed. Despite the fact that they were such great people, Korach was like a, 
a prophet. The 250 people that included great princes. They were all great. Nevertheless, so great is this danger of disputes, of arguments, of rebellion, of controversy. The greatest people can fall into that trap. The Even if they mean it for the sake of heaven, we're only doing this because we believe in God. The personal aspect of it, your ego um, involved in any aspect of your religious life will immediately result in skewering your outlook and involving you in things that you shouldn't be involved in. And that is the beginning of a downward spiral. I'm going to say one last thing, which is number eight in the source sheet. Essentially, what he's saying is that machloket in and of itself isn't a sin in the same way as other sins in the Torah. Murder is a sin. You're not allowed to murder. Desecrating Shabbat is a sin. You have to observe Shabbat. Machloket isn't a sin in that way. But the effects of Machloket, what happens as a result of Machloket is an infection. That's why the children were killed. The children weren't killed. You can kill your children if you are involved in controversy. If you become somebody who's constantly controversial, and argumentative and difficult, you'll destroy your children. You'll contaminate your community. You will destroy the environment in which you live to the extent that there's literally nothing that can be done. People who involve themselves in negative world outlook, in any kind of um, you know, destructive viewpoint, an ideology that's negative and negates they will not, it's not just about them, their wives, their children, their families, their communities, everybody will be infected by this virus. There's nobody who can escape. It's not like a sin, you know, if I'm a murderer, of course I'm not, but let's say somebody's a murderer, right? Somebody's a killer. They killed, they did the wrong thing. It's very sad, you put them in jail or whatever it is that happens to them, and Somebody breaks Shabbat. He broke Shabbat. Doesn't mean everybody else is going to break Shabbat. Argument is an infectious disease. It infects everybody. You know, and I can go into this in much greater detail, which I will probably in in my upcoming lectures. Um, I'm giving one in London, and there's going to be more in the fall, about the infection of controversy, how it destroys families and communities. But we'll leave it here for today. Yeah. Um, that's my love. I do think.